You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Surprising new data is affirming that we can actually train our brains to be functionally and structurally younger. Now, if you're interested in living a longer, healthier life, increasing your lifespan and your health span, then it starts from the top down. Our brain is controlling so much about us. So many aspects of our downstream physiology are going to be controlled by this master commander upstairs. And now again, new data is affirming that we can train our brains to be not just functionally younger, but structurally younger as well. And that's what we're talking about on this episode. Today, more than ever, we've got a choice to make. We can be in the guild of those that are becoming the walking dead. And you see it. You see it out there. It's a cultural phenomenon. The Walking Dead, I think it has like 13 seasons. Bunch of spinoffs. It's because is it life imitating art or art imitating life? We've got that whole paradigm that's taking place right now. But we also have this emerging paradigm of people who are more dedicated to their health, to their performance, to living their best life, living the best life possible. And we can choose which path we're going to make based on our own decisions. We have so much power in this equation and we're gonna be talking about that as well. Is it our genes that are controlling our destiny when it comes to our brain, when it comes to our cognitive function, when it comes to things like Alzheimer's, which has now become the sixth leading cause of death in the United States? Is it just in our genetic cards or is there a much, much bigger story? So this episode is our packed. Today's guest is neurophysiologist and human performance coach, Luisa Nicola, and she's the founder and head performance advisor of NeuroAthletics, a human performance coaching firm that boasts the highest performing athletes and executives in the world. NeuroAthletics brings science-based solutions to elite performers who want to perform at their peak. Luisa graduated from the University of Sydney Medical School and specializes in neurophysiology. And without further ado, let's dive into this conversation with the amazing Luisa Nicola. All right. I want to start off by talking about neuroathletics. This mm-hmm. is a new concept for a lot of people. So can you share what neuroathletics are and also what are some exercises that we can do to get the benefits in our own lives? Yeah. So neuroathletics is my company. We're now a 10-person team, which is so exciting. And the term was actually coined from neurocognitive training. So when you look at exercise, right, we, we know aerobic exercise, we know resistance training, but then there's this little bucket, which is predominantly in the scientific literature coined as cognitive training, which is how do we train our brain? So that's uh, when I started my company about 10 years ago, 24, yeah, 2014, I thought neuroathletics, how can you have an athletic brain? Mm. And apart from everything else, you know, the sleeping, the exercising, the eating well, there are other things that we can do as well. So cognitive functions represents things such as your ability to think, processing speed, um, reaction time, decision-making, memory. These all, I won't say deteriorate as we age, but they become slower. You know, you can probably think back to maybe your early 20s when maybe you were a bit faster with your thoughts. Maybe not the best with your decisions as you are now, but as we get older, these things decline. So we can train them. Mm. We can do things that can actually train these areas of the brain. We can do things such as 
really simple exercises like throwing a tennis ball to the wall. You're getting hand-eye coordination, reaction time, speed. You can do memory tests. You can do vision. You know, within the vision field, there's like 20 different exercises and tests that you can do. You can do, you know, put your eye, put an eye patch on one eye, throw the ball, stand on one leg. Yeah. You know, we just actually, and funny enough, you you didn't know this. We just put together a show where I was sharing some of the weird or stranger benefits of exercise. Yeah. And one of them, there was so many studies on this, affirming how the act of like physical activity ourselves, our whole body improves our vision. Mm-hmm. But within that, I made a little caveat that there are certain exercises that we can do with our eyes themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, every part of our physiology can be exercised in a way. And this is why I'm so excited about neuroathletics because it's just like, when you said, to have an athletic brain, I'm like, I want that. Yeah, exactly. You know? And so can you articulate this a little bit more? Because I love this. I, I do this exercise. For me, I want to do it more frequently, especially now talking with you. I got to get my stuff together. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least once a week, I'll, you know, tennis ball outside mm-hmm. of my house, throwing a tennis ball, alternate, alternating my hands, mm-hmm. um, changing speed. Where now I'm pretty fast at it, you know. And um, can you give a little bit more detail on... Because you just said throwing a tennis ball against the wall. Mm, that's just, like your starting point. Yeah. So, yeah. But you can do anything. Like there is like you know, the sky's the limit. Because if you're getting faster, right, then you can start to add things in, like put an eye patch on your eye, um, stand on one leg and throw the ball. I'm sure it will be a bit more demanding then. Or give yourself cues. Like you can get an app, right? And the app, oh, I don't know what it's called, but it shoots out different colors, red, blue. And you can develop or have somebody else develop different cues for those colors. So when the red occurs, maybe you do a burpee. When the green light comes on, maybe you throw the ball twice. When the, uh, I don't know, the, the yellow light comes on, maybe you stand on one leg, turn around, throw the ball in the air, catch it. Things like that. And there's like the sky is the limit. And I would say generally one day a week is not enough. You want to be doing these. So we have all of our clients doing it at least four days a week. We really want them to be strengthening those neural patterns and it actually relays into the corporate world. You know, mm. we've got a lot of non-executives at Neuroathletics that come and see us for performance coaching and optimization and they're seeing the results in the boardroom, they're seeing the results, you know, Louisa, I'm able to just think faster and think clearer. Mm. Got a little Usher confessions here, you know, about what I've been doing in place of, because I was doing it at least every other day mm-hmm. for a nice stretch there. And, you know, alternating hands, I'll throw with one hand, catch with the other, throw with the same hand, catch it. And um, then recently I started gaming with my youngest son. Yeah. So I started getting back into, and I haven't gamed in years. I used to be, you know, pretty avid. And uh, him, him and I have been playing 2K, uh, so NBA 2K. Okay. And he's really into basketball. Yeah. But also I've noticed that there are certain things that, with my cognitive ability, you know, my reflexes, reaction time, all this stuff is improved by playing these games. Yeah. And the thing is, I get asked often, you know, can we do video games? Is that going to strengthen? I always say no, because I would rather you be doing it when you're actually, your heart rate is up as well and you're getting blood flow to the brain, because that's going to actually provide a, a better environment for your brain to strengthen these pathways. But anyone can do it and it doesn't matter what age you are. And Prevention is key, which we're going to talk about a lot today, but prevention is key. And you want to basically build up what we call cognitive reserve. Mm. It's like building up a bank. Think about these exercises as 
money that you're just putting into your bank, putting into the cognitive reserve bank. Because as we get older, that cognitive reserve depletes and we need a lot of it to just do basic tasks. You know, when you're 75, it's going to take a lot of cognitive reserve from that bank as what it would to do the exact same thing at 25. You know, with this, obviously technology is a huge part of our lives today Mm. and it isn't going anywhere. And we had in uh, Dr. Adam Ghazali and he has the first FDA approved video game as a treatment. It's been approved as a treatment for ADHD. Oh, wow. And he acknowledged that the fact of like, we've got this really interesting ability to work on things like hand-eye coordination and, you know, focus and things like that. But that sedentary lifestyle is a big, big lacking aspect Mm -hmm. of the gaming um, culture, Mm -hmm. right? And so I'm wanting to kind of inspire folks that are gaming, like to to be some of the fit, like be the fit gamer, you know, somebody who's very physically active and because that translates over into the other things that you do as well, mm-hmm. you know, with with gaming, when you're able to actually get your heart rate up, as you mentioned, to actually move your body. And with that being said, I wanna ask you about this. It's really fascinating that we're just now having this be a big part of the health conversation. How, how much does our metabolic health overall impact the health of our brain? Oh gosh, I- immensely. And uh, I just can't wait to get into it because you think about metabolic health, you think about insulin resistance, you think glucose, and then you think about mitochondria. And so many people often neglect the brain when we're talking about mitochondria. Have you had Dr. Chris Palmer on the podcast? Yeah. And he speaks a lot about mental illnesses being a metabolic health issue. I think that that's really profound. But when we're talking about even energy, we, we require mitochondria. So metabolic health as it relates to brain aging is astronomical. We know that our, our brain ages as we get older, pretty much predominantly at the age of 30, we, our brain starts to atrophy. And with that comes lower energy. We need more cognitive reserve, more energy to do several tasks, just like walking and talking. And the mitochondria is, I think, a huge player in that. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because you said it, you know, when we were in school, we were, when we talked about mitochondria, mm. it was really kind of rele- relegated to a cell, I think we think in our bodies, yeah. right? Kind of downstream. Yeah. We don't really think about mitochondria in the brain. Yeah. And this is why I'm a big proponent of creatine. So we have around 87 billion neurons in the human brain. And a neuron is just like a cell in the body, except it possesses something called an axon. And that's how it communicates with the nearby cells and it it creates, you know, would say transmission propagates down that cell and communicates with the other one. And that's how we think and do and act and speak and produce actions. So these 87 billion neurons has a cell body. And within that cell body are all of the, you know, the nucleus, the organelles. It also possesses our mitochondria. And the mitochondria is the, the site of ATP production where we're producing all of our energy. The sad thing is sometimes we can have, you know, maybe 10,000, 30,000, 40,000 mitochondria in a cell. And we think, you know, we know that more mitochondria is good. We can produce more mitochondria to produce more energy to have a better functioning cell, right? But sometimes we may have damaged mitochondria in that cell, meaning that the little factories inside our cell are not producing energy 
effectively. So for example, when we eat, you know, just to be really simple, we eat and then our body figures out, okay, how are we going to use, how are we going to make energy from what we've just eaten? And then your mitochondria, if it's dysfunctional, it might not be able to produce the energy that is needed and required for that cell to stay alive, to propagate, to talk to other nearby cells. And eventually we get the degeneration of these mitochondria and then the degeneration of a a cell, cell death, apoptosis. That's fascinating. There's two parts, two big parts of this. The mitochondria themselves being able to do what they're designed to do efficiently. And that can become dysfunctional in of itself. And and so again, we can be bringing in all the good fuel, what we think to be with our diet, but if Mm. our mitochondria aren't able to do their job properly, some things are gonna be wasted on us essentially. But you also said that we can make more mitochondria. Yeah. And this goes back to exercise being one of those proven ways that we can make more. Mm, And that's actually one of the many benefits of exercise as it relates to the brain. Because we do get, we induce mitochondrial biogenesis, the creation of new mitochondria, through vigorous or moderate to vigorous physical activity. So HIIT workouts, and this has been proven in the the scientific literature, that it can induce mitochondrial biogenesis. We want that. It can also clean out dead cells that are no longer there. This is actually why a lot of people fast. But you can get a lot of the benefits from exercise. And then what you're doing is you're placing stress upon the mitochondria because we need the mitochondria to produce energy. So when we're working out, evidently we we have a large energy demand. So our mitochondria go to work. They get a bit stressed. They're like, guys, you know, guys, I'm a bit stressed out. I need to get real strong. And also, why don't we just create new mitochondria? This is what the, all the other little mitochondria are saying. Why don't we create more so she can have you know, we're too stressed out. We're, there's not enough of us. We need to create more. So let's grow more so she can have, you know, we can meet the energy demands. So that's how it pretty much works. And the fun thing is you can also get this from cold water immersion. So cold water immersion, and we don't even need to get into temperatures because I know many people are like, well, temperatures, timings, really to the point where you're starting to shiver. And that's different for me. It's different for you. So getting into cold temperatures is also going to create this shivering response. What that is doing is your body's shivering to try and warm yourself up. So what happens is you vasoconstrict, your mitochondria, obviously the site of heat production. Your mitochondria are like, guys, she's freezing. She's dying. She's out. She's in the wilderness. We need to make her warmer. Let's get to work. So the mitochondria... They go and get to work. But guess what? They're like, guys, there's not enough of us. She's too cold. We need to create more mitochondria. So then it, it creates more mitochondria to keep you warmer. Our bodies are truly like adaptation geniuses. Oh, it is unbelievable. When you really understand the mechanisms of action of like, or even cell biology, when you really get to the crux of what a lot of people are talking about on social media, it's a really beautiful thing. And it, here's the thing, though, it goes in both directions. Mm-hmm. You know, we can adapt to what we would call unideal circumstances. Yeah. We can become, we're talking about neuroathletics, we can become a chair athlete mm-hmm. and our bodies can become very good and adapted at chair sitting. Oh, yeah. And if we try to do other things, 
this can dramatically increase the risk of all types of problems. Mm -hmm. And not to mention just blood flow and cognitive function, all this oh, stuff, yeah. because we're marathon sitting in our yeah. culture now. Yeah. So we have a choice. Mm -hmm. We get to choose the adaptations that our body is going to, is going to do. And with that being said, I, I wanna ask you about this as well, because metabolic health impacting our brain health, mm -hmm. what about certain biomarkers like maybe our body fat percentage or if we're carrying excess weight, is that affecting our brain? Yeah, and actually obesity is a, a very, very big risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. So you think about obesity, BMI, a lot of the studies that are being done on the correlation between fat mass and um, and Alzheimer's disease really comes down to body weight around the visceral organs. So we really want to be making sure that we don't have visceral fat. That's fat that is surrounding our organs, which is quite, you know, when you think about it, it's like, oh, I'm scared. Like the thought of me having fat in around my heart or my liver is really scary to me. Or when you think about it as in a, it's penetrating the muscles, you think about uh, the difference between a really uh, like a fine cut steak or a, a highly marbled Wagyu steak. That's what you're, you know, sometimes that's what your visceral organs can look like if you've got visceral fat around them. So we know that it can affect um, our brain in many ways. Yeah, we've got a few studies looking at our gray matter being affected by the weight that we're carrying, but also we've got some data showing that as we're losing excess weight, our, our brain is getting healthier. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's just one of those things, again, this exercise isn't just about vanity metrics. And I know that that's a big passion of yours is to help to reframe this. Yes. Because obviously it's not enough. It's yes. not enough to motivate us as a culture when there's, on the other side, so many different entities that are profiting from our ignorance and, mm -hmm. you know, kind of creating a culture where we're not moving our bodies and taking care of ourselves in the way that we might aspire to. And with that being said, I want to dig more into this incredibly, like, people don't understand just how much Alzheimer's is affecting our culture. You know, right now, and this is according to the CDC, it's the sixth leading cause of death mm -hmm. in the United States. And mm -hmm. it's just one form of dementia. Mm -hmm. So let's That's talk correct. a little bit more about this epidemic of Alzheimer's. Yes, and before we do, I was actually going to mention a statistic, if I believe, because I posted this um, not long ago, 47% of US adults are actually meeting the guidelines of exercise, which I don't even agree with the guidelines, the um, the the CDC, the guidelines, which state that you should be doing at least 150 minutes of uh, moderate physical activity per week. I think it should be raised to at least 300, but only 47% of US adults are actually meeting that. So that's a scary thing. There's a lot of people who are just not meeting the exercise guidelines. And there's some nomenclature um, mishaps, I believe, in there as well, because physical activity to a lot of people can mean I'm doing the washing. Mm. I know that's what it means to my parents, and I have to reframe that. I'm like, that's that's not it. Like, exercise is what it should be, not physical activity. So that's a that's a big thing. But definitely, as it relates to Alzheimer's disease, my my big passion is I'm basically here to say that we lose our identity to Alzheimer's disease, unlike the other diseases, cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes. You've got so many diseases that are killing us. 
but none of them allow you to lose your mind like Alzheimer's disease. And I don't think people really understand that. And so I'm here to say that Alzheimer's disease isn't something that we should be fearing because we now have substantial evidence to show that lifestyle interventions, especially exercise, can really help prevent and delay the onset of this disease. So what is it? You mentioned dementia. And dementia, you can it's not so much a disease as it is a set of symptoms where you lose a lot of your cognitive abilities, which we spoke about, your executive functions, your thinking, your memories, processing speed, etc. And it sits as an umbrella to represent other disease states such as frontotemporal dementia, Parkinson's dementia, dementia with Lewy bodies, and of course, Alzheimer's disease, which is actually now classified as Alzheimer disease, named after Eloise Alzheimer. And why do we know about that one the most? Well, because around 6 million people in the US have Alzheimer's disease, approximately 50 million people worldwide have Alzheimer's disease, and that number is said to triple by the year 2050. So it's creeping up to us and we're getting there. And unfortunately, in the US, we don't have a lot of people helping us as it relates to marketing. Um, The pharmaceutical industry is actually banking on you getting Alzheimer's disease. So you make more money for their investors. In fact, um, I think it was January 10th, JP Morgan held their healthcare conference, their annual healthcare conference, where they stated to their investors that this year, in 2024, they're looking at getting around 20 to $25 billion in Alzheimer's disease, that space, looking for a cure. So they're pretty much, so investors are banking on you not knowing that there is not a cure, but there is a prevention and it's free and it's exercise. They're not putting that into that. They're not telling you that. They're, they are saying, guys, in JP Morgan's basically saying, hey team, investors, pull all your money into the Alzheimer's disease space because a lot of people are going to get it. We know that because people are getting fatter, they're getting more sedentary, they're not exercising, and we're not going to go and tell them that. We're not telling anybody to go out and exercise. We're just banking on the fact that they're going to get Alzheimer's disease and your money is going to triple. So by you not exercising, you are paying for investors' children to go to private schools, you're paying for their cars, you're paying for their yachts, and who loses out? You. You lose your mind and you lose your brain. So I'm really passionate about this. Like, imagine, like, look yourself in the mirror today. Look, literally look yourself in the mirror and say your name, say your address, say who you love, say what you love, say everything that you're thinking. Because if you get Alzheimer's disease, i got to tell you, it's a very sad case because you can stand there and someone can say, oh, who am I? Where am I? What, what am I? What, who, what? That is so scary because, you know, they say you're, you're born into this world alone with your mind and we die alone, but you, you die with your thoughts. But imagine if they're not there anymore, what do you die with? That hits different. Yeah. Got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. Do you ever feel like your brain is running on low battery? Well, batteries themselves provide energy from chemical reactions that involve 
Electrolytes. Electrolytes are minerals that carry an electric charge, and electrolytes play a major role in providing energy for your brain. Take sodium, for example. Sodium is an electrolyte that actually enables your brain to maintain proper hydration. Our brains are mostly made of water. It is so important for the form and function of our brains, but we can't maintain that hydration to do all the things that our brain does without an adequate supply of sodium. Not only does sodium help to maintain proper water balance, a study conducted by researchers at McGill University found that sodium functions as a quote, on off switch in the brain for specific neurotransmitters that support optimal function and protect the brain against numerous diseases. That's just one important electrolyte for the brain. Another critical electrolyte for your brain for providing that electrical energy for your brain is magnesium. A fascinating study published in the journal Neuron found that magnesium is able to restore critical brain plasticity and improve cognitive function. In a double-blind, placebo-controlled study published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease found that improving magnesium levels in adult test subjects who were in an at-risk population for Alzheimer's, these folks were between 50 and 70, improving magnesium levels was found to potentially reverse brain aging by over nine years, getting a functionally and structurally younger brain. Electrolytes are that important. Now, there's one company that has hundreds of thousands of data points for the optimal ratios of electrolytes, and that company is Element. Go to drinklmnt.com forward slash model, and you're going to get hooked up with a free gift pack, a free sample pack with every single electrolyte purchase. Hook yourself with any of their electrolyte flavors and you're going to get a free bonus pack. It's an awesome opportunity to get the very best electrolytes in the world without any artificial colors, without any binders and fillers, no nefarious sweeteners or anything like that. Just the highest quality electrolytes on the planet. And by the way, Element is actually fueling athletes in every single professional sport. Many professional sports teams from the NHL, the NBA, especially the NFL, have now switched their teams over to utilizing Element for their team's electrolytes. Even though they might have NFL contracts to have those other brands, like the Gatorades, the Powerades, the Haterades, they might have contracts to have their containers on the sidelines, but many of these teams are now utilizing Element. Again, go to drinklmnt.com forward slash model. And with every electrolyte purchase, you're going to get a free sample pack. Head over there and check them out. And now back to the show. Until somebody experiences this with somebody close to them. Um, again, this is, seems very like notebookish. Mm. You know what I mean? I know. And the reality is it is a terrible, terrible way for us to 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 die to suffer and and here's the thing and for me this is an overall statement but there's so much unnecessary suffering in our world today unnecessary we have all of this apparent innovation we know this stuff it is very elementary when it comes to for example exercise mm -hmm. like your body requires that in order for healthy function your cells your dna all this stuff but we're existing in this paradigm where we have this pharmaceutical model that is, it is banking on. Mm -hmm. if, it is like in, in our culture, in our economy, it's a big part of our GDP as well. Mm -hmm. 
banking on American sickness. Like it is the arguably the most profitable thing to invest in because we just keep getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And a part of this goes back, and I want to ask you about this piece, to something that has long been disproven, but even when I was in college, this was kind of the top tier belief system, which was genetics. You know, this is based on our genetics. We're genetically uh, predisposed to having Alzheimer's. Let's talk about the genetic connection. Yeah. And that, again, is another myth. And people, you know, when I say I'm in this world, I'm studying, I have a review paper coming out soon, which I'll send to you. You'll love it. I'm in this space. Like I often forget that a lot of people just believe that you just get Alzheimer's disease when you get older. It's just normal. No, it's actually not normal. So there is, so we know this from GWAS analysis, where we get a large population of people who have Alzheimer's disease and those who don't, and we look at their genetics. So we know that there's around 30 genes involved in this specific disease. I'm not talking about dementia, I'm talking Alzheimer's disease. Out of all of these cases of those who have Alzheimer's disease, only around 3% possess the genes which you know, which you would classify as 100% penetrant, meaning that if you've got these genes, you will get the disease. Only 3% of the population. So why does the other 97% have it? Why? Is it because we're just not smart enough that we just don't know? No, it's because of lifestyle factors. We have three genes, right? If you get it, that's it. That, you can't help it. Okay, It's presenelin 1, presenelin 2, and amyloid precursor protein. That's APP. So those are the three. The other ones that people associate Alzheimer's disease with is called the apolipoprotein E4 gene. If you have one copy of E4, it raises your risk, okay, four times of getting out. It raises your risk. Doesn't mean you're going to get it. They are lifestyle genes, risk factors. You know, it's just like if I walk across the road with a blindfold, I raise a, my risk of getting hit by a car. I may not get hit, okay, but I'm not going to walk across the road with a blindfold on. I'm just not going to do it. If you've got two copies, one from mum, one from dad, E4, E4, if you're an E4, E4 carrier, it raises your risk twelve by 12 times. So that's still scary. But guess what? People who have the E4, E4, only 50% of them will get Alzheimer's disease. So you can get, you can still have E4, E4 and not get it. Yeah. So the apolipoprotein E gene, so we've got ApoE1, which really is, I haven't seen really, very extremely rare. Maybe 0.1% of the population has that. You've got ApoE2. And this ApoE2 is actually thought of to be protective against the disease, right? Then you've got E3, which is just a wash, meaning it doesn't raise your risk and it doesn't lower your risk. It's just null, nullified. And then you've got the E4, which raises your risk um, by the times that I told you. I myself am an E3, E3. I've been tested and I wanted to get tested because it's A, it's my space. Um, I like to be aware. I do my bloods like religiously just to see how I'm going. So I'm E3, E3. I'm envious of, you know, people who have got E2, E3 because they're a bit more protective. But basically what you're doing is 
you're protecting your brain against lipid metabolism, which we'll get into when it, you know, as it relates to cholesterol, saturated fat, LDL. So it pretty much protects the arteries of your brain with metabolizing that LDL. And if you've got the E4, E4, pretty much doesn't help you. It doesn't help you break down amyloid, which is one of the biomarkers of Alzheimer's disease. And what I think is really fascinating is the fact that we still, in 2024, we still don't have a cure. There's been many pharmaceutical companies who have come out with the cure, but they've all failed. And the the, the medications have been around, how can we ameliorate amyloid? So there is two theories. We still don't know what causes Alzheimer's disease, but the theory is it's due to the amyloid cascade hypothesis, meaning that this amyloid protein builds up and it just builds up and we it, it forms a plaque, if you will, in your brain and it affects cell-to-cell transmission because it actually builds outside of the neuron. So it affects the communication between cell to cell. Ergo, if we don't get communication, if we don't get blood flow, that part of the brain eventually dies. We need blood flow to the brain to you know, enable a cell to survive. So it eventually dies. And so a lot of companies have come in and they said, let's, you know, let's try and target the amyloid, but none of them have made it. So why not think to ourselves, why don't we stop the amyloid from occurring in the first place? Can we do that? Turns out we can. Is it that E word again? <laughs> well, it's that it well, it's many things. It's sleep, it's exercise, it's emotional health. Yeah. You know, when you said that, you know, this promise of a cure, for example, that has been wildly monetized, and we're talking to the tune of, you know, billions of dollars, but it just reminded me of an important question for us to ask ourselves, what have they cured? Mm-hmm. What's been cured? Mm. You know, just looking at the past couple of decades, things have not really gone well. Again, we have all this apparent innovation, hundreds of billions of dollars thrown into cancer research and Alzheimer's research and diabetes and the list goes on and on. But yet the reality is, and this is just what is, why would they be in the business of curing something? Yeah. You know, when our system is much more acclimated to the treatment of symptoms. Yes. And then that would keep a person logically as a return customer. Mm -hmm. And that helps to keep the market going, you know, like without sick people. Yes. And with people getting cured and not being sick, like then the market fails. So what kind of business model is that? That's just silly business. Exactly. Which is why when you go and do blood work, I, you know, I'm very like, you know, we do extensive blood work at NeuroAthletics. Like I'm talking extensive. We get to know you like so completely, like it's phenomenal. But when I will look at somebody, I'll say, well, what blood work have you done? They'll show me. And they're like, but my doctor, my PCP said it was fine. I said, of course they did. Because your PCP is not there to give you optimized results. They just want to make sure that you're alive right now. They don't talk to you about trends. You know, the two things when it comes to blood work, we're going on a tangent, but I'll just tell you, two things that matter are trends. You know, where are you trending? and ratios. What's your LDL to HDL ratio? So there's many things in uh, the American healthcare. I'm Australian. There's also things in the Australian healthcare system that really 
really bug me, which is why I'm advocating for people to exercise. I've exercised my entire life. I was a I was an elite triathlete. I raced for Australia. I love it. Uh, I think it just is the elixir for health, and I think that we can all be doing it because it's free. Yeah. With that being said, talking about optimizing, mm. you mentioned this earlier with the 150 minutes of recommended exercise versus 300. You're saying we need to double that. And when we're talking about you know the recommended 150, usually so many of these different RDAs of things are based on this is what to do so you don't develop a deficiency. Like yes. this is the bare minimum. Exactly. So that you can just get by. When in reality, again, our bodies are so, we evolve with a lot of physical activity, you know? And so today we have to kind of proactively create, mm. simulate that with different exercise movements. And what I'm really into right now and just passionate about is like, and I'm, this one, I'm so happy to have you here today. It's just like every part of me can experience exercise and development, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, whether it's, you know, my, my neck muscles or strengthening my feet, whatever the case might be, you know, it's like, there's so many different cool things and we would naturally be getting these inputs, but we don't anymore. You know, right now we're rocking these shoes, which your shoes are super cute, you know, but also are we getting that, that input from the ground mm. that we evolved with for, you know, this kind of kinetic chain to mm -hmm. have this close connection to what's happening when my feet are touching the ground. Yeah. And so being able to simulate some of these things and getting in those, I, I really look at them like nutrients, you know, mm -hmm. movement nutrients throughout the day. Yeah. So it's, it's really exciting. And at the same time with neuroathletics, we're working on the organ that's responsible for all of it. Yes. And we often fail to recognize that we have a map of the brain, you know, Broadman's areas, and we've located them all. So every single part of the brain is responsible for something different in your body. They represent different, you know, one area represents, you know, language, production, feet, this and that. So what happens is as we get older, we stop doing things. Okay. We stop, you know, I don't climb trees anymore. I don't box jump, which I tried to box jump. I, I met up with some of my triathlete friends from way back when, you know, we lived together. We were just, you know, a family. And they're like, let's box jump. I couldn't box jump. And I remember just like being an absolute power plyometrics athlete, you know, back then. I'm like, why can't I do that anymore? It's because I stopped doing it. But imagine all of the tiny hundreds of thousands of little things that you're stopping to do. What happens? Your brain says, oh, she she ain't doing this anymore, so I don't need the neurons responsible for that. Kill, die, and that's how we end up getting brain shrinkage over time. Cerebral cortex thinning over time. So then we think, oh my gosh, I've um I've just gotten my parents to do just basic things every day. I said to my dad, I want you to sit on the floor and stand up without your hands every day. That's it. Now I've got my mom just like stepping up. On a, a you know on a little level, and we're going to get further and further. Just I said, if only you're doing one a day, I don't care. What you don't use, you lose. That's what your brain says. You're not going to use me, Louisa. I mean, and it's hard because how you know as you get older, you've you know you've got a spouse, you've got work, you've got kids. It's like Louisa, when do I have time to throw a ball? When do I have time to run? 
when do I have time to make the food? It's like, well, I know. Just do it, as Nike <laughs> says. Yeah. That, that's one of the biggest messages from today, truly, is like our bodies, our brains works on a use it mm -hmm. or lose it basis. Mm -hmm. If we're not doing those things, that was such a great example with the box jump. But here's the cool thing. You could train those neurons. You mm -hmm. could train those muscle fibers. You could train your body to do that thing again and yeah. grow new branches. Mm -hmm. But wouldn't it be good if we don't lose it in the first place? You exactly. know, just keep that as a part of our lives. But our culture, again, is constructed in a way that we move away from all this physical activity. We sit in chair, like even as kids, mm -hmm. if you think about it, it is pretty abnormal to take a kid who is just full out play, mm. just want to play. And like, you've got to sit at a desk I know. for, you know, seven hours a day. And I don't know if you know this, but younger people now are getting dementia. Yes, of course. Yeah. The, younger. That, that the age is just going down further and further. Which again, at JP Morgan, <laughs> they did not mention this. They're not, they're out there. They're knowing that. So they're like, guys, $25 billion annually that we can make because younger people are now getting dementia. Put your money in there. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. sickening. So chronic degenerative diseases have been happening in younger and younger populations. Mm -hmm. And I'm one of those people, you know, at 20, advanced degeneration of my spine. Oh. I was 20. Why? Degenerative disc disease, which okay. is supposedly incurable and all the things. And my L4 and L5S1 disc oh. dramatically deteriorated, showed up black on the MRI, and also they were both herniated, so I was in pain. And that was just that, you know, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, you're gonna have to live with this, and here's some medication. And so the next couple of years, I was always going to the pharmacy, getting my medication, Yeah. when the entire time there were solutions available. Yeah. You know, but nobody stopped to ask, how is a kid experiencing this advanced arthritic condition of his spine. Also, I broke my hip yes. when I was 15. Well, how many kids now are now getting on Ozempic? Getting a, a lifetime injectable medication to stop them from eating. Like, what are we doing? Like, where should the public health policy be? Where should the money be going? It should be going instead of, you know, in America, it's so different in Australia. Like, you know, you're watching a TV show in Australia, the ads come on. And they're not pharmaceutical ads, not from what I see. But in America, everything is, hey, have you got a headache? Take this. Oh, have you got IBS symptoms? Take this. Everything is based on medications. It's just like, why don't we spend that money and educate people on what exercise is? And by the way, this 150 minutes, the people, the 47% of US adults that are meeting it, I would say only probably about 3% of US adults are actually doing the right thing. The other, you know, 44% uh, probably walking around, just going for long walks. I mean, walking's fantastic and we've seen that it can improve outcomes in cognitive health, but it's, you're, probably, you're probably still in zone one. Like if you're not getting that blood flow, which we're going to talk, uh, talk about the different forms of exercise, you're not going to get the benefits. Just to circle back really quickly, as you said, you've already said this multiple times, it's not just the one thing. Exercise is obviously huge, mm -hmm. but you know, our sleep quality, mm -hmm. our relationships are gonna impact our health. For me, my, my biggest obstacle 
or the thing that was probably causing the most cellular dysfunction that was leading to my outcome was I was eating like 90% of my diet was ultra processed fake food. Oh, wow. All right. Living in Ferguson, Missouri. Oh, no. Just in this glorified food desert. And I'm making my tissue like I'm this. These are the materials I'm trying to provide my body with to make me mm-hmm. right. Let alone the energy exchange, let alone all the deficiencies that I had where my body just had to even leach certain nutrients and minerals from my spine and from my hips just to help my blood to clot, for example. These are basic, very simple things to understand if you understand. Yeah. But in that model, it's just like, I'm sorry that this is a situation. We can't do anything about it. Here's some drugs. Mm -hmm. When even 10 years later, when I got a scan done, my two discs showed up normally on the MRI. The herniations had retracted years ago when I got a scan done nine months later. After learning about nutrition and movement, all these things, the body can heal very quickly. But, you know, every everybody's story isn't going to be the same. But these key inputs were things that were completely removed from my livelihood. You know, I was at the time, this is why I, I, this is why I stopped gaming, actually, because I was just sitting on this so-called love seat that I had. It wasn't even a full couch. And I just said this the other day, like, I carried that couch into my apartment myself. <laughs> if you can carry your own couch, yeah. it's probably not a couch. Exactly. All right. It's an ouch. And, um, you know, sitting there playing video games all day and eating like fast food every yeah. day. What do you think's going to happen? Yeah. You know, let alone, don't even get me started about my sleep. What sleep? You know, it's just like whenever, like if I was exhausted, I would just go to sleep. There was no kind of structure, no honoring of what my, my, my genes expect from me. Mm-hmm. You know, and so this is where we get to, and platforms like this are so powerful today because while that is existing, this very powerful pharmaceutical model, which there are valuable aspects to it, we also have the opportunity to learn some things. And you said the F word earlier, your eyes, so people can't see your eyes are like, what? The, I know, what did I what say? I, you said free okay, earlier. Yes. So many of these resources are free. You know, just yeah. being able to get out and to, and to walk and to move our bodies and, you know, to run a little bit and to do some explosive movements. Not a lot is required for us to fortify our health and also to pre- prevent some of these very serious conditions. But, you know, you, you say that we've got a lot of free education and we do. Like I've, I've got a podcast every single week I talk about Alzheimer's disease. But you can listen. It's like reading a book. But you've got to actually do it. And it's all fun, you know, listening to it. It's exciting. I'm learning. What are you doing today? Ask yourself daily, what have you done today to raise your heart rate? Um, I'm staying in West Hollywood and I there's a huge, is it La Cienega? Is a, all of, I don't know, to get to sunset, there's a huge hill. It's really, and I, I just, this morning, I was just running up and down that hill like a, like a maniac. So just do what you can with what you can wherever you are. Mm. So our body and brain works on that Janet Correct. Jackson formula. What have you done for me lately? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Shout that. out to Janet Jackson. Um, I want to ask you about, you mentioned earlier, creatine. Yes. Talk a little bit more about that. How does that play yeah. into this? So creatine is one of the nutrients or one of the supplements, I should say. I've got two of my favorite supplements that I think everybody across the board Without even looking at your blood biomarkers, I can say you should be taking these two things. The first one is creatine. And creatine is naturally occurring. Like we make little, you know, small amounts of it. And it's involved in cell energy metabolism. Cell 
energy metabolism. We all need more energy. Energy is life. We need it for everything. We need energy even just to think, you know, you know, negative thoughts. You actually need energy to stop negative thoughts or we just spiral into these, you know, depressive states each morning. We, we all have the ability to do that. So creatine has been widely studied for several, like so many years. It's the most widely studied supplement on the market. It's the cheapest and it's the safest. And I think that we should all be having at minimum five grams of creatine per day. It helps with neuroprotection. So it can help protect your brain against insults. An insult can be, okay, NFL, take a hit to the head. Okay. We, we've seen studies where they're actually dosing NFL athletes with around 20 grams of creatine prior to getting hit in the head. And it's been shown to be neuroprotective, protecting the cells against the, the forceful hits. It can be neuroprotective in neurodegenerative diseases. There's early studies now, preclinical studies in humans, showing the protective effects of creatine in Parkinson's disease. And I'm telling you, there will be soon, there will be human studies showing the effectiveness of creatine in Alzheimer's disease. The studies are currently taking place. We're just too early to obviously state that. But we've seen them in mouse models. We've seen that it can protect the brain against so many harmful effects. Not just that, it also helps at the gym. You know, it helps give you more energy, give you more being able to pump more, you know, being able to lift more. We know that muscle mass is related to the longevity of our brain. So it helps in so many different ways. Is there any naturally occurring creatine in foods? Yeah, but we just have to eat a lot of it. You know, it's found in liver, most predominantly in beef as well. So we can get it. It just means that like you just like the bioavailability of it, you'd have to be eating a lot. Mm -hmm. Just like omega-3 fatty acids, which is my second supplement. Mm -hmm. We can get that from fatty fish, right? From salmon, mackerel, but you'd have to eat a lot of it. And the bioavailability now, because they're all farmed, is not that great. So we have to supplement. And, you know, I'm a big fan. I've been talking about this for years, as you have with omega-3s huge fan. You know, there's so many benefits. Uh, can we talk specifically about the benefits for the brain? Yeah. So specifically omega-3 fatty acids, we're talking about DHA and EPA. They're the ones I'm talking about that are really beneficial for the brain. First of all, the most important fat for your brain is PUFAs, omega-3 fatty acids. Our brain is made up, you know, it's a fatty organ, right? So it's, it's three pounds and it's kind of like hard jello, right? That's what it's kind of feels like. It's made up of fat and water, really a small amount of protein. The fat is predominantly, well, 20% actually, 20 to 25% is DHA. So you're actually feeding the brain what it's made of. Now we can just, you know, I can spend an hour talking about it and going really, really molecular, but I'm going to take a, a helicopter view and tell you a few of my favorite things that it does. First of all, it really lowers inflammation. So the inflammatory response, it can be dampened with omega-3 fatty acids. It pretty much has a, um, it's, it should be a pharmaceutical grade agent. That's how amazing it is, but it's not. We can get it over the counter. So it can help bring down inflammation, which we all need. 
I actually did my CRP um, quite recently and it's high. I didn't think, I don't know why. I mean, maybe I'm just very stressed, but um, I've got a really high omega-3 index. So it's like, okay, what am I doing? But it can really bring down um, inflammation. The second thing that it can do is it can really help with the blood-brain barrier. And we know that blood-brain barrier is, you know, we've got these cells on the outside of our brain and they're basically responsible for not allowing certain molecules to come in. And what happens is we can get the deterioration. That's actually one of the early signs of brain degeneration, like Alzheimer's disease, et cetera. These omega-3 fatty acids can actually help with the cell membrane fluidity. It can help with the cells on the outside of that blood-brain barrier as well. So there's just so many different like aspects of it that are beneficial. I would not sleep on EPA, DHA. Facts. Yeah. Facts. And even, you know, part of this degradation of our blood-brain barrier is one of these markers for all kinds of neurological problems. Mm -hmm. And certain fats have been found to actually help to reestablish some health with that barrier. And, you know, signal transduction in the brain. Mm -hmm. um, these are made also partly for structural fats of the brain that itself. Correct. Like, yes. How important is that? If you're not giving your brain the stuff that it's actually made of, yeah. you're probably going to have a problem. And also we've got randomized controlled trials on it, improving memory and reaction time, all this other stuff. Ameliorating, again, um, um, ameliorating amyloid as well. Mm. Yeah. Again, you know, it isn't just a one-sided conversation if we're talking about exercise, like doing the, the neuroathletics, but also providing the nutrients so that your brain can fulfill the job. Correct. Go all the way. And, you know, with creatine, with in particular, when it comes to DHA and EPA, I'm a big fan of krill oil. Mm -hmm. um, I've experimented with all kinds of different, uh, you know, DHA and EPA sources over the years. And krill has astaxanthin, which mm -hmm. is another antioxidant that, that's protective mm -hmm. of the omega-3s. And I actually get both of those, the krill oil and creatine from Onnit, which we were talking about right before we got started. And I love Onnit because they use earth-grown nutrients for their supplements. And also there's no nefarious stuff coming through, no you know binders and fillers and all this unnecessary stuff. And so definitely pop over there, check them out. It's onnit.com forward slash model, O-N-N-I-T.com forward slash model. You get 10% off store-wide. I actually just got some krill oil that just came yesterday. Mm -hmm. I just reordered. Um, so again, omega three. We're on the same page. Omega threes, mm -hmm. creatine. Mm -hmm. If you have just those two supplements, you're straight in a healthy overall diet. That can do so much good. I would also recommend um, a lot of people doing an omega three index test, which measures the amount of omega three in a red blood cell. It's a pinprick test. It's super easy, super affordable, and apparently. Most of the U.S. adults have an omega-3 index of 4% or less, which actually um, is terrible as it relates to all-cause mortality. What we need to be aiming for is an omega-3 index of 8% and above. I currently have 10.5%, which I'm super proud of, and basically decreasing my risk of all-cause mortality. That's another important thing for us to understand. This is arguably one of the biggest nutrient deficiencies in our society today. It is a huge deal. And if we're wondering like why are people, you know, whether we're talking about mental health challenges, whether we're talking about chronic illnesses, like 
some of these things, we're literally not getting the stuff that's making up our brains. Mm-hmm. I know. Which is, this is the organ of decision. Mm-hmm. This is the organ of memory. This is the organ of us being yeah. us. Yeah. You know? And so if we're not providing these very basic things, then we're going to be struggling. That's correct. And so we've got to reorient ourselves and also have compassion on ourselves and also other people as well, knowing, you know, sometimes we're just not well nourished. And we know how it is, even in our culture, we have this hangry paradigm, but some of this hunger can be chronic, right? The brain can be starving for certain things. It's going to just make you more agitated. It's going to, you know, affect your energy, obviously. And we can be a better version of ourselves if we're Mm. nourishing our brains. Mm. And with that being said, going back to these movement nutrients and exercise inputs, I want to ask you a specific about HIT. All right, you mentioned it earlier, high intensity interval training. So what does that actually look like? Mm. How often should we do it? What can we do for HIT? Yeah. Let's look at exercise as a whole. So exercise, we're going to break it up into aerobic exercise and then RT, which is resistance training and how it relates to brain health. What we have to understand first and foremost is our brain is survived by blood because blood flow gives what? Oxygen and nutrients to the brain. So every time our heart pumps, our a you know our aorta you know comes through the aorta, we have branching off of the aorta. So we've got the carotid arteries, and then we've got the vertebral arteries. They're the the two major arteries that go into the brain. We've got branching from there. So that's how we get blood flow to the brain. We've got three main ves- uh, three. We've got an, we've got arteries, we've got veins, and we've got little capillaries, right? The capillaries are one cell thick, so they're tiny, but they're still doing their job. They're delivering a lot of the a lot of the blood flow to the blood brain barrier. We've got veins, and then we've got the arteries. The arteries are the ones that have muscles around them. These big tubes that deliver like a lot of oxygen and nutrients to the brain. So we know that we need aerobic exercise enables you to get blood flow to the brain. That's why when you exercise, you feel good. You're like, I just got a rush of endorphins. I'm you just it's because you've just excreted a lot of blood flow. There's two wonderful things that happen during exercise, aerobic exercise. The first one is we get something called cardiac remodeling. As we age, our heart changes. It it it, it shrinks and it becomes stiffer. So when we are aerobically fit, when we are constantly pumping our blood, we're getting a more efficient heart. What we're looking for is we want to increase stroke volume. So meaning, so we want to be able to, so we require, our, our entire body requires a certain amount of blood to you know, keep us alive. And so our blood pumps. And with every pump, that's stroke volume, how much blood is being ejected per pump, with every pump, we're getting out a certain amount of blood. The fitter you are, the less our heart needs to pump. So you've probably heard of resting heart rate, right? Meaning, you know, how much blood do we need or how many times does our heart need to beat per minute just to keep us alive? The fitter you are, the lower your resting heart rate. So we're generally looking at, you know, mine is, in Australia it was 45, but if you've got a resting heart rate of, you know, I would say 55 to 60, it's okay. Uh, we've got two of the France athletes who have got like a resting heart rate of 38. That means that their 
their heart is so efficient, it is so strong that every time it pumps, it pumps so strong that it ejects enough blood for the entire body. So it says, okay, I'm fine. I've got enough blood. I don't need to keep beating. Whereas if you don't have a cardiac system that is efficient and effective and it's weak, you're going to be needing to pump out blood at rest and that's not good. We don't want that. So aerobic physical activity not only strengthens the cardiovascular system, but you're strengthening the arteries. So that is one of the good things of aerobic exercise. The second thing is we get a massive rush of something called BDNF when we're doing long bouts of exercise, brain-derived neurotropic factor. Again, I'm going to tell you something really amazing with this. First of all, it's a growth factor for the brain. It helps with signal conduction, but it also helps with the growth and proliferation of neurons in the hippocampus. So deep within the temporal lobes, we've got these seahorse-shaped structures. That's where I call it the seat of the soul because that's where our memories are formed. And that's the first thing to go during Alzheimer's disease. We can grow the volume of this hippocampus through aerobic physical activity, through the expression of BDNF. Get this, pharmaceutical companies are spending billions of dollars trying to replicate BDNF in injectable forms because they think if we, we've got the cure, we've got the cure for depression, for Alzheimer's disease, for everything, if we can just inject patients with BDNF. But guess what? They can't seem to bottle up BDNF but we can get it for free. We just have to run for 20 minutes. So, you know, there's a lot of studies that are being done on the relationship between BDNF and depression. But I actually want to go back to the cardiac system because there's a wonderful cardiologist, um, Ben Levine and his group, they produced a landmark study back in 2010. And this one makes my, oh, I'm like, I've got, I'm going to frame it because it's so amazing. What they showed was that over a two-year period, they put 50-year-olds on an exercise program where they were doing one hit session a week, and then they were doing 30 minutes of vigorous exercise four to five times a week, 50-year-olds for two years. Guess what they found? They completely remodeled their entire cardiac system and changed the age of their heart by 20 years. So these 50-year-olds had the heart of a 30-year-old, which is mind-blowing, which means what? It means less stiffness. They had more uh, left ventricular, ventricular volume, less ventricular stiffness, which means and a more efficient heart. 50 years old with a 30-year-old heart. Unbelievable, just from exercise alone. Notice I didn't say moderate physical activity there. I said vigorous, meaning You've got to get your heart rate up. Your brain and your heart needs that, that pumping. You need to be huffing and puffing, right? So that's aerobic exercise. We love it. We need it. It's fun. Get on a bike. So many people get caught up in, well, what do I do? Is it Pilates? It's just, just do it. Just You can be jogging on the spot for all I care. Your body doesn't care. Your brain's not like, oh, she's on a roller. No, it just knows blood flow, right? So that's that. Then we move on to where my primary area of research is, and that's resistance training. And this is where my, my um, study with um, my mentor and colleague, Dr. Tommy Wood, who's taught me so much in this field. He's absolutely phenomenal. What we're seeing is that resistance training is offering 
a whole host of other benefits. And it predominantly comes down to something called myokines, which are muscle-based proteins, and, and we all have them. Your muscles are these tiny biomedical labs, and they are there. It's like a pharmacy for your brain and for your body. And these tiny little myokines, they get excreted every time you use your muscles. So every time you uh, contract your muscle against force, meaning that if you're going to do a bicep curl, I don't want you lifting two pounds. You know, you've got, it's got to be forceful. Your muscles, the muscle fibers contract, right? And the cells of the muscle spit out these tiny little proteins, myokines, and they go into the bloodstream and then they have an effect on our brain. We've got myokines such as IL-6, which we used to know as a pro-inflammatory cytokine, but it wasn't until a wonderful researcher, her name's Benta Peterson, she saw, she actually coined the word myokine. She found out that when IL-6 is secreted from the muscle, it's actually anti-inflammatory. So you have an anti-inflammatory effect. We've got irisin or irisin. It is getting secreted as well. And that is actually, you know what that's doing? It's actually helping with the expression of BDNF. So it's helping BDNF actually express itself even more. And these myokines actually cross the blood-brain barrier and they go into different areas affecting executive functions in the frontal lobe, affecting eyesight in the occipital lobe, affecting the hippocampus. And not just that, there is now, we've got human... Uh, evidence. It was actually produced in a really wonderful study in Cell. Um, it gives me goosebumps talking about it. We're showing that can actually lower tumor growth. So it can actually inhibit tumor growth. There's also another study that was done on breast cancer showing that doing moderate to vigorous exercise prior, this was on, on women with breast cancer who were actually going in um, metastatic breast cancer, going in for chemotherapy, you're actually blunting the effects of that tumor growth and helping with the chemotherapy if you're doing exercise. Like it is the app, it is, I just don't, un, like we don't need to be going with prescription drugs when we have exercise. Exercise should be a vital sign. Your PCP should be checking it, just like they're checking blood pressure. They should be checking exercise. It should be mandatory. It should be in there as a high, a, you know, how much exercise have you done this week? That's not enough. You will die. You are dying. Exercise. You know, the other part of this that we didn't mention yet is with this current model, what are the side effects? You know, the side effects with exercise generally are just like, okay, so I've got this benefit to, you know, protecting me against Alzheimer's, but also protecting against cancer and also yes. for this and this, all these other benefits. When we look at a statin, for example, mm -hmm. we see loss in muscle function. We see yes. issues with the brain. What is the cost of treating a symptom when we have the real solution here for us? And again, mm -hmm. largely free. And also you get all these other beneficial side effects. Even the term side effect has a negative connotation, rightfully so. But we can get positive side effects by implementing what you're talking about today. Yeah. We can get positive. I mean, look, the negatives of exercise may be, okay, you're going to increase maybe your injury risk, maybe, if you're doing the wrong thing, which 
actually brings me to my next point. I think everybody really should invest in a trainer, if you will, because not a lot of us look, I've got great form, but I really can't be bothered. I just, when I go into the gym, I just need someone there or I'll just be on my phone. Okay. So like, it's like, I just need someone there just doing, I don't want to think about that anymore. I've, I've gotten to the place in my life. I've, I've done my time as a triathlete and I'm used to having a coach. Then I did some time of, you know, doing the work myself. And now I'm like, you know what? I've got so much going on in my personal life, in my professional life. When I go to the gym, I just need someone there guiding me and setting, setting the stage, basically telling me what to do. I think a lot of people shy away from getting an instructor. They think they know what they're doing at the gym. A lot of people don't. Know thyself. Yeah. Know thyself. That's so important, you know. And also there's group training classes. What you gotta find what is going yeah. to get you get you up and going. Mm -hmm. Give you a sense of accountability, a sense of progression, work all out the things with friends. You need. Yeah. Yeah. Work out with your friends. There's so many different flavors of this, but you must know thyself mm -hmm. is part of this equation. And as you mentioned, you've got a, a paper that's going to be coming very soon. I can't wait to, to see it. But if people want to stay up to date with you yes. and your research, how do they do it? Where should they go? I hang out on Instagram a lot, Louise and Nicola. Um, for any personal trainers or athletic trainers listening, we have a our biggest thing that we do at Neuroathletics. We have a six-week course for, um, for coaches called the Neuroathletics Coaching Certificate. It's led by me in a live online forum, so it doesn't matter where you are in the world. We have different intakes and different cohorts throughout the year. You can do that. It's You learn all the pillars of human performance. And I also have a, a podcast, which is literally dedicated to the brain, the neuro experience. Amazing. Where yes. can people get information about the, the training? Yeah, neuroathletics.com.au. Awesome. Yes. Awesome. Well, I'm glad that you could stop by. I know Thanks, you just came Sean. in from Sydney yes. on your way to New York. And so to have you to come and stop by is really, really awesome. Thanks so you. much for having me. Louisa, Nicola, everybody. A big takeaway from today is to reframe our thinking about exercise because we're not just training our bodies. We're training our brains. Literally, we're training our brains when we're training our bodies. With that being said, of course, physical activity, doing challenging things, you know, doing some high intensity interval training, some resistance training, playing some sports and things like that are all going to be helpful. But there are specific cognitive exercises that we can do as well with neuroathletics. For example, as Louisa mentioned earlier, just taking a simple tennis ball and throwing it at the wall and catching it with your opposite hand, that can help to actually train different parts of your brain. Brushing your teeth with your other hand, you know, we tend to be either right-handed or left-handed. We do have some ambidextrous folks out there on the streets. Absolutely. But brushing your teeth with your non-dominant hand or doing more activities with your non-dominant hand trains our brain in unique ways. Also, just paying attention. Just simply being mindful. Mindful, according to the person who really put mindfulness into our popular science lexicon, Dr. Ellen Langer, who's been on the show recently, which after this episode, if you missed that one, you should go back and listen to Dr. Ellen Langer's interview. She's the first woman to receive tenure at Harvard University's School of Psychology, their psychology department. And she has affirmed that this act of mindfulness, if it was boiled down into a simple act, is paying attention, noticing, noticing, just simply paying attention to things. You'll notice that 
nothing is ever really the same. There's always unique aspects to the things in our environment that we tend to get jaded by. We tend to become desensitized to people, even people. That's why you've probably had this experience before. I know that I have where certain people, maybe you, your significant other, maybe they get on your nerves. Maybe they get on your nerves. And there might've been a time when you would never think that this person would annoy you or get on your nerves. But over time, because we stop noticing the uniqueness about them, we start to become conditioned because we think we figure them out or we see them, we see the same person, their same practices, but there's always something new. There's always something else that we can notice and pay attention to. And the same thing holds true for ourselves. The same thing holds true for our environment and just paying attention to this beautiful life that is happening all around us, it really helps to keep our brains youthful. So being more mindful, AKA noticing, is one of those other cognitive exercises to help to keep our brains strong and young and vibrant. If you got a lot of value out of this episode, please share this out with somebody that you care about. Send this directly from the podcast app that you are listening to. And by the way, make sure that you're subscribed. Whatever platform you're listening on, make sure that you are subscribed to The Model Health Show. I don't want you to miss a thing, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, whatever you're into, Google Play, whatever you're into, whatever you're listening on, make sure that you are subscribed. It really does mean a lot to make sure that you don't miss any of this goodness. And of course, you could share this episode out, take a screenshot, share it out on social media, tag me and tag Louisa. She would be blown away to see the love. I know she would. As she mentioned in this episode, she does hang out on Instagram for getting her education out to the world. So she will definitely see that tag. We've got some epic masterclasses and world-class guests coming your way very, very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care, have an amazing day, and I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you've got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.